Hi, I'm Patrick Pond, CEO and founder of Fabro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to this show is that Fabro customers are some of the most innovative companies in the world. Enterprises wanting to be more agile, software as a service companies scaling fast, and game developers and publishers wanting to master live ops. So we get to know some truly inspiring leaders in product development, marketing, operations, sales, executive management. And what we do here is that we interview them about leadership so we can all learn from them. Let's go. So hello, everyone. We are live with Casper from uh, Copenhagen. You're in Copenhagen right now, right? I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm at Flashbulb in Copenhagen. Yes. Ah, fantastic. And I'm actually going to, we have a very ambitious uh, title today. It is Learnings from Creating World-Leading Products, Excellence and Culture. That's that's no small feat to discuss. But what I think we need to do, you know, for the audience here that doesn't know you, is that uh, if we just have a bit of the story, you know, how you how you got into, the, into game development uh, in the way that you do today, because, you know, you've been... Going, you know, from from film, you know, through software to, you know, there's, there's so many cool things you've done, and you've been involved in in so many, you know, absolutely world leading products. So, so you know, I, I think I think you know this conversation will make so much more sense for everyone if we just get that, um, uh, you know, just a bit of a story on, you know, how how you got started in, in the creative industry and and your road to to what you do now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna try and summarize, you know, uh, the last uh, ten years in uh, five minute catch up. So uh, I graduated from the animation workshop in uh, in Vibor in Denmark, uh, where I graduated uh, with a computer graphic artist uh, bachelor degree. And uh, immediately uh, when I was done, actually I wasn't uh, an artist from the beginning at all. I was uh, very bad at drawing uh, even, but I just played a lot of computer games and I really wanted to become making something with computer graphics. And one day I was just reading a newspaper and then I heard about this school and I just applied and they said no. And then after a year of uh, steady drawing, I actually got in. And uh, to summarize that really quick, three years later, I had two portfolios, uh, one that was for compositing and one that was for technical directing. And uh, I kind of just rolled the dice and then I sent out both of those showreels. And the first one that came back, I was just going to take the internship with. And uh, I was lucky enough to get into uh, MPC in London. It's the moving picture company. It was uh, really weird because they had this, they were known for having done the Harry Potter franchise and I really wanted to get in. They were quite huge and uh, and and it was a huge thing. Uh, we were lucky enough to be two of uh, us in my old class uh, who got in. And they, it turned out that the project that they put me on was uh, this crazy project. They all said like, yeah, we don't quite know. It's the next Marvel film. It looks a little bit weird. And it turned out to be uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and I didn't know that when I was working on it because we're just seeing like these little snippets of the film and it was really weird. And, and uh, yeah, so that was the whole beginning. And uh, just, you know, sitting with people like that, uh, that are so talented, you know, brings you to... A very high motivational level so i worked a lot uh, but eventually i wanted to broaden out a little bit and learn uh, a little bit more so i went into commercials uh, where i spent uh, the next two years uh, in the mpc commercial so i stayed in the same company but they had a commercial department uh, and i stayed there and then uh, eventually uh, as i started out by saying i'm a huge nerd and i always played a lot of the blizzard franchises you know like uh, millions and millions of people so uh, when i heard that uh, lucasfilm in uh, singapore was making world of warcraft I was just getting on and I just made a portfolio just for Lucasfilm. And uh, crazy enough, they actually replied. And uh, two months later, I started at Lucasfilm in Singapore. And then I went uh, down there. Uh, and then if I summarize really quick, I went back again because I'm close with my family and living in Singapore is a little bit time zone wise hard compared to Scandinavia. So uh, I wanted to be back in London. And then I started to freelance. And because I 
was early on and I had, uh, you know, gotten the experience to build my own pipeline and slowly I just ramped up and there was more demand that I could follow. So I just started hiring people and also did a little bit of tutorialization and tried to become, you know, got some views and people started to notice and that gave me more jobs. And then I just quit freelancing and just had my own little company and I moved it back to Copenhagen, started hiring a few people. Again, I think uh, there's a lot of learning when you start a company when you're 25, and I think you also know about that, <laughs> Patrick. You know, it's uh, there's some things, and eventually, I just wanted to not have a company on my own, and I just needed to sit back and figure out what I want to do now. And because I've met so many people, you know, that happens when you have a company, that kind of just drove me into uh, producing, and then eventually, I was just offered a role as a producer in uh, in Copenhagen, and uh, three years later, I, I've been a producer for. For, for Flashbulb now for the last uh, one year and then uh, I started as a producer for games for three years ago before that it was film then commercials then just asset handling so I've taken all the way back and uh, all, at the same time all do, uh, through that uh, I studied uh, an MBA so I could you know get the full circle so my goal was really just to understand everything there is to learn about creative industries from both the art side with my degree in, in arts and then to Uh, my MBA in leadership and then uh, business economics that I'm also studying. So I'm doing like the full circle, which which obviously makes uh, a producer that can be in a, a lot of different conversations. I think that that's the shortest I can do it. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. I think everyone has also kind of got the, got the impression that you know when you set yourself to something, you know you you really pursue it. Um, uh, so. Um, you know, you, you probably have your biggest victories in in front of you. So hopefully, you know, we have a we have another of these uh, talks, you know, in in, uh, in in the future. We can talk about uh, you know things then. But can you? Because you know, Flashbulb has been having some success. Uh, but I would I would argue that it's not a household name, uh, you know, within the industry. So maybe you can just briefly tell a bit on you know the kind of games you make and the success you had. Yeah, absolutely. So we're right now producing two games that are successfully uh, out there uh, one is actually very popular in china the other one is doing really well in america one is called trailmaker that's the american one uh, it's an explorer game where you build your own vehicle uh, whether that's a flying machine or, or a, a submarine or a vehicle uh, on land you kind of like build it out of these bricks and um, and then Uh, and then you kind of raise your friends and you participate in all these mission setups. Uh, you explore planets. And then the other game is a party game uh, where you are basically four players that are playing together either locally or online and we do cross-platform. And uh, it's about four bandits that are basically just beating each other up, uh, you know, to get the most loot out of a level or, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know, like the, the summary of that game is so crazy, but uh, but the summary is that you're playing four bandits that are beating each other up and it's about getting the most points in roughly five to six minigames. And then that repetition kind of goes over and over again uh, with different kind of modifiers each time. What was the point with both of these games when you knew that it was a hit? You know, where, I mean, which metric did you use? Or, I mean, you know, when when was that? Do you remember that day when you felt like, you know, shit, this is actually working? I would put it like this. First of all, I was not a part of the first game that really made the hit. I'll make that clear. So uh, Trailmakers had, had, had been in the in the mix for a very long time and eventually it just hit. And that was uh, a huge success all of a sudden. And that kind of spun off some of the guys to say, okay, let's try and do something else, but a smaller, different kind of game and try and hit a different audience and try something new. And off that idea came Robert Bandits, the game that I'm producing now. Uh, And that game, when I started at, at Flashball, had had an initially 
good launch and we see that a lot with games that they have a good launch and then it really quiets out very fast and then you need to think fast and figure out like what are we going to do now you know what do we learn from from all of this and i got into the point where okay the game succeeded in a great launch and then it was flattening out for too long and then they said okay how do we fix this so i had three major challenges that i needed to to overcome uh, first of all we had a high return rate uh, doing to uh, some challenges in the back end we had some processes that were unclear uh, and then we had some role descriptions that uh, that needed to be clarified a little bit more and i think that comes back to our our conversation that we're about to have you know how how we actually set up a team for success and how we you know actually clarify what is the most important goal right now uh, talk about kpis you know the successes that we're looking at is uh, you know you can have a game that has a that has a play session of 20 minutes and that can be a success and you can have a game that needs 18 or 30 hours you know we see that on trail makers it has an enormously long uh, play time play session but it's with Bravo bandits it's it's completely opposite we have maybe shorter shorter game sessions they don't come back that often is that good or bad for the business that's where you know like as a developer team you have to you know connect yourself really well with the business because what is it that the business is really looking for the longer players are staying the more they cost because we are having server costs and so on but on the other hand we can make more money out of them of players if we're selling downloadable contents what we call dlc right so for me the success rate was when we when we had processes where we could deliver at a at a pace that felt like a good cadence so we could actually go out and test our hypothesis that was that's a little bit more it's harder to quantify, but the other thing that we were really working on as a KPI was the return rates. And then of course, like our retention rates that we really wanted to boom a little bit more. And we saw that uh, spring from, you know, maybe 30 to 60 games a day to yeah, right now up sometimes around 10,000 a day. So obviously like in the, the past 10 months, we really, you know, switched the button, uh, what do you call it? Flipped the plate a little bit around and, and got it working. So I think we can talk a little bit about like how we did that and go into a little bit in details. Yeah. And, and before we jump into that, um, you know, you're starting a little bit, you know, high level. Um, are there similarities between, I mean, you know, you know, some of these extraordinary uh, teams in film that you worked with, but also then, you know, teams in games and, and, and also other software um, I mean, it, it, it's a, I know it's a tough question, but I mean, you know, are there are there some let's say you know you know maybe cultural traits or around kind of like you know similarities between the people working? I mean, you know, if if you would have to to uh, you know give a speech on okay, these are these are like the the, the similarities I've been seeing, you know, the, the the success patterns you've been seeing across you know these companies. Yeah, I, 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 there definitely are. Uh, I think when you're working in film and uh, and in games, uh, typically, like I actually made a note that I wanted to 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 talk about that. You know, we're working with people that are very passionate, no matter what, because it's creative industry, and that obviously means that you know you need to treat people the way that they want to be treated, so you get the best out of them. I think that's uh, that's pretty clear, pretty pretty clear, and the way. Uh, I do that is by you know finding the champions that really has the vision that other people can round and can go around and I think that's that's something that we really do a lot you know we we appoint somebody you know not by pointing at them directly but by knowing that these are the champions and we need to empower them uh, and I think what we have to understand is also for instance with programmers for instance a lot of them can work in industries that are probably a lot more lucrative than just being programmers in games and I think as leaders we have to recognize that they're here because of passion that means that we have a 
we have a responsibility to give them work that is both interesting and fun for them to do. And I think that goes both for film and games. They know they don't work here because this is where they make the most money. They work here because they love what they do. Uh, and I think that that's definitely a, a big takeaway uh, for both artists and programmers, uh, I believe. Uh, cool. So let's uh, let's move a little bit more into. Um, I mean, where which end would you like to? St- you said that you know the the success of them. You know the game you've been been you know working on producing. I said there was a couple of takeaways there that you wanted to share. I mean, maybe we we start on that end. Absolutely. Like I I think we can start in a place. You know, when you go into a game production. E- when you go into a game company, a completely new producer, you know there are several ways you can do it, and I think uh, I I spent some time obviously watching some of the of the Favro podcasts and really liked the ones with uh, Nicola Tora and uh, Joe Nichols. I think they both had good points about how to drive culture and how to drive processes, and I think like this conversation could probably be a bit of a mix between both of them. When I look when I started at Flashball, the first thing you know as a leader that you identify is is their trust in the company. Do the do the people actually believe? That the that the that the the ones who are leading the company knows the direction that they're going and do they trust that they're in good hands, and that and that really opened up an opportunity for me because if you're in a company where there's no trust, the second that you take people out from their chair and you take them into an office and you have a conversation with them, that might spike nervousness in a company where there's no trust. But if your company with trust, they're going to be like, okay, he's actually out there figuring out like what do we all think, you know, as an opinion and how can he get the best out of us? And I did that with the entire company. At that point, we were about 40 people and I took them just one-to-one, had a conversation. What do you think is good and what do you think is bad? And that out of that conversation, we can create a process or have a conversation where people have ownership because you can say, this is what, you know, it's been heard. I'm unbiased because I haven't been here before. So also like creating that kind of, you know, creating that space for people to be open because they know that I can't do any damage to what's already there. I'm not here to fire anybody, just here to listen. And that really gave an, you know, as soon as I recognized that there was trust in the company, it made the the opportunity to create a process where they could also own it. And if we go back to that, then I would say there was three major things that I wanted to do. It was figure out why is the delivery not happening fast enough? Like how do we decentralize decision-making from the product owner down to the team? And how do we get rid of, some of the return rates that was like a thing that we were dealing with a lot and i think that's quite common when you when you sell a lot of copies in china it's a you know everybody talking about the great chinese firewall you know like it's really hard to sell games because getting data out and understanding that data is really hard uh, so that was the second one and then you know talking a little bit about decentralizing decision making was the last one because the product owner had built the game for a while and in this company the way that we do games is that we take a little core team and then they go to the side and then they make a game for a little while and then they come back with some ideation and then we start you know building on that but they have to create the space and if we have to create the space for the person to go over and do that we have to first decentralize all the decision making so the team is not left behind uh, and that's a, that's something that really you know m- as soon as people are aware that they can make decisions on their own and they're not getting told off for it or you know that we actually encourage that uh, you get a you get a, a you know, you create a, a creative space that really allows people to be, you know, you know, hear all the insane ideas that we have. And if you ever play Raw Bandits, you'll see that it <laughs> there's some pretty strange things going on, right? <laughs> so, so I think like creating that space. Um, but I have to ask you something around that because this is almost like the eternal question with any game development. Um, you know, um, so I think I think a lot of companies right now are 
are moving towards you know more decentralized you know uh, decision you know planning and decision making process i mean this is kind of where you know we come into the picture but um one challenge is of course always that you are making um a, you know a creative product um and there's typically there's typically some senior people if it's a you know a founder on the creative side or you know or art director creative director etc you know it's like you know you are going to have senior people um that ultimately needs to be um you know ultimate tastemakers in a sense uh so your product doesn't become a frankenstein of you know what five different people thought were their best idea and, and, and the, the balance between, you know, that and the decentralized, uh, uh, you know, decision-making, I, I find that this is one of the hardest things for a lot of game developers to figure out actually how to do in a good way. What has been your approach? When you're working with creative people, there's always a lot of opinions. And first of all, you have to emphasize that everybody can be heard, but not everybody can, you know, get their way. So we are appointing people that are decision makers. Uh, what we usually, what I usually try to say is that if we can talk about like an example of how I implement the process at Flashbulb, first of all, like I we work on a very loose uh, set of rules, but the few rules there are, we're quite hard hard on. So I want to have, you know, we do drive the Scrum process, but everything that happens in between Monday and Friday after two weeks, it's up to the team to figure out. And I think like if you draw up you know, a playing field and, you know, give people, you know, the opportunity to be creative within that. That's how you create the ownership. I agree. If you just say like, go out and find your own processes, you know, they're going to have 10 processes at the end of the day. So I think it's finding the balance between drawing up the playing field. And I, I can actually give you a couple of examples of how we've made this work. Um, we were sitting with Robert Bandits and wanted to create a retention drivers. And some of the retention drivers we know from, from other games and competitors and experience also is uh, creating customization for characters, as an example, or leveling up systems or daily missions. All these things are things that will make people come back, play longer or invest more money in a game. And what we did was we, we, we went to our marketing department, we went to uh, the back end and the data engineers and we said like, okay, we need, or they told us we need to make a game uh, that retains people longer. And then we said, okay, that's the KPI that we're going to tell to the production team. We have to make a KPI that does this. We don't want to go over, I think it was 25 minutes of play session. So create something where you can enjoy this meta game loop outside of that. But more than that, we actually didn't tell them. So we drew up like, this is what we want to succeed in from a business and a marketing point of view, but we also allow you guys to be creative within that field. And then we kind of like, there are different ways of driving Scrum processes, but the way that we do it, we have two methods, right? The one is either we focus on one feature and we take a month and then we build that feature in that month. It means that we start, we come up with ideation, we do an alpha, a beta, a polish and a release state, and then we just release it and then we see how it goes. That happens all in one month. Or we take several features and we do maybe something like two and a half to three months. And then we lift maybe four or five features. And then we say like, okay, the first two weeks, we're going to just agree. Let's have a discovery phase where we say like after, and then we make the, you know, everybody, everybody who's ever worked with Scrum will know about the definition of done. But if you haven't, the goal is to say, this is what we're going to build. And at the end, you review it and say, did we actually manage to do this? And I think like creating that uh, safety for people that, you know, you're saying that, like, the question was if, how do we create, you know, like the ownership or how do we uh, allow people to feel creative 
you know, without putting them into a bucket and saying it's waterfall and now you're just going to do this. And I think if you constantly just say like, okay, this is the playing field and then the next two weeks are this playing field, then you're kind of like agreeing all the time and you're kind of lifting the project, you know, together. More as if I just said, okay, uh, we just sat in a room, we can see that we need a retention driver. The creative director says it has to be customization. You're going to have to deliver this in three months, do it. That would never work. And that's also why you see people that come up with these ideas where they draw up a, a roadmap and then they say like, okay, in, in six months we have customization. That can usually take a year because it's not, you have to lift it together as a team and it has to mature also. Like we talk a lot about maturity. Uh, maturity happens both within the team. For us, it's like we put something into an alpha state that can be one sprint, lift you know customization to an alpha sprint. That's the definition of done. If you're working on something that's not that, don't work on it unless you have done this part first. And for us, going with that is that every time we come to, at the end of a sprint, we also know that we are agreeing that this is what we want to do. And people have the opportunity also to say, this is not what I thought it would look like. Okay, well then let's talk about like, what did you think it was going to look like? Now we have, now we have something to talk about instead of going with this, okay, in six months, we're going to talk about this and then it's going to, you know, magically turn out to be a good customization feature. And, and that's not going to give people ownership. And I think, talking about giving people ownership also goes the other way people want ownership but i don't actually think that most people want too much ownership either you know they they want to feel heard they want to feel involved but the second that they stand with the ball in their hand and you just say like okay well you know go play <laughs> that that's not always feeling people making people feel super comfortable either so i think like uh, you're right it's uh, it's about a uh, it's about finding the balance and i think that's how we do it basically lifting you know like a little bit at a time but making sure that we all the time agree on what is the next step what is the next step and then we have four fixed step we have an alpha a beta a polish and a release stage and that's it then we usually say now is enough how um you know has this been you know hard um i mean do you do you find it it's more challenging to get get this to work with more junior talent that you recruited or do you find it more challenging with, with um, you know senior talent that's been around in the industry for a while it's mm, a good question i i think um we began as a as a relatively senior team like i don't think that we maybe had two people in our team out of 14 developers uh, that were probably less than two years of experience the rest of us were maybe eight to ten years plus and i think uh, that that the uh, that does mean that sometimes junior artists, you know, listen more than they actually talk, which is all, you know, like that's the nice way of saying, you know, there's also a lot of things that people can learn. Uh, but I would say, you know, as soon as we also try to onboard them like juniors quite fast uh, and just we have a lot of play sessions with in-house. And today we had a new programmer starting and he said like, I have a couple of ideas and, you know, like we really emphasize that people should just spread those ideas and i said there's i'm not gonna start a playstation i mean you're new today so i'm gonna ask you know our uh, game designer to help you start a playstation but if you have ideas have you know ask four people to play with you and you know talk it through you know like with the with the with those guys and, and just see if if they like the idea and if they like the idea you know more people will talk about it and you can talk with the product owner he's sitting right next to you and probably in the playstation so so like i think we we create the ownership but again, it's by spiking ideas. And as I said, I don't think that our team is a, I don't think, I don't think that there's a massive difference between that because we still emphasize what the final goal is. And as long as we all feel like we're delivering on the final goal, it's okay that people are junior, as long as we have a, you know, the, 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 
I want to say like uh, the pillars of our game development is, you know, for marketing, business and production, you know, those are the things that are going to make it work. And as long as, you know, we can say like, we would really love this to happen at this time because it hits this amount of people. We're going to aim to make this amount of money. If people can work under that and understand that, then, then it doesn't matter if they're junior or senior. Uh, sometimes I need help to repeat that. No, I think this is a, you know, I think, I think it's interesting what you're saying. And, and, you know, you mentioned before, you know, the podcast I did with, um, you know, Joe Nichols and, uh, you know, he 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 once said that you know, you know, you know, his team is kind of like it's it's old dogs doing new tricks, and one of the things which is good, you know, with people with some experience, is that um, if you get the right people with experience, is that you can, you can have a very clear idea of what you know what do we want this company to be, and also what what not to be, because most people have probably experienced both good things and bad things previously in their career, so uh, and and then you know like that, that creates I would say kind of like a gravity. On, on what it is that you want to do that that you know the new ones get sucked into so you know they you know onboarding in many ways would be easier because you know there's you know there's this this strong culture to be absorbed into it um so with that said let's, let's talk a bit more about culture i mean how how deliberate have you been around uh, culture i'd say we've spent <laughs> I spent quite a lot of time, you know, like with the CEO and uh, sorry, the CEO uh, Ole, who's uh, who's also the previous owner of the company before they sold, talking about people and you know who do we actually, uh, who do we think have the good ideas and uh, who needs to sit next to who and like that that kind of low level conversation really also spikes, you know, just how we manage to make people talk with each other, you know, and it sounds weird, but when you are we are small teams, but we are really we're a medium-sized company. I would say, as a, as a, I think we're turning up to be forty-five now, and I think uh, the way that we spy culture is having as much autonomy as possible. Even for the juniors, we make sure that we never waterfall them. We never tell them this is the feature, go do it. That's uh, that is how a junior can have a relevant conversation with a senior. And if you can make that, you really get the culture right because everybody feels the psychological safety that it's also okay, you know, that I just asked a stupid question. I didn't know it was stupid. I didn't intend to ask a stupid question. And you with more senior experience are just going to be like, yeah, you know, like this is how, and, uh, you know, I can also show you this over here. If you feel that and you can feel that passion, you know, where they really try to teach each other things, then then you're then you're creating a culture of learning and i think that's that's really what we also try to do a lot and it's also fun you know like talking about that modern day leadership i mean we're talking about getting interns but today some interns are you know paid as much as a junior because they bring so much value from educations i mean we're obviously in scandinavia where education is quite good as well i would say and and sometimes you can get like what could be like a business analysis or data analysis that comes straight out of uni that are, you know, just exactly what you need. And they're interns and you're like, okay, maybe, you know, we're actually learning from you more than you, <laughs> more than your policy, uh, more than you are learning from us. And I think um, that that's, that's, that's something that we should just, you know, put more emphasis on. And I think uh, creating a culture of learning is actually, you know, everything I stand for. And I think I'm also a product of it. Because I educated myself uh, two times since I finished my school or my first education, so for me, as I began with, I started out with uh, with a degree in art and 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 studied MBA on the side, and I don't think that's ever going to be a point in my life where I'm going to not be studying something, and I also. I oftentimes go to the university uh, where I graduated and I uh, teach for maybe a week or two because I feel like it's a great place. 
and they, and it's also a good place to recruit. So you, there's a lot of benefits. I think a lot of people are doing that, so I'm not afraid to say that. Yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a very smart recruitment recruitment tactic. <laughs> And it's also good because you don't want to get people in that has a different idea of what your company is doing, right? You want them to understand what it is that they're getting into. So it's also good for them. It's not only beneficial for us. You know, you can, they can easily spot if we're the right company for them by me presenting something or teaching them a way of doing things. If they really don't like it, you know, there's no point in starting at Flashbill because that's how we do it. Um, and I think when, um, when you go and do those things, I always said to them, you know, the more, the, the, you know, if you educated yourself in the 50s or in the 60s, you were, you know, or in the 30s, you were probably going to work with that for the rest of your life. If you educate yourself today, you're going to work with something different in five to 10 years. I think that everybody, you know, will that are educated now and in the last 10 years will have to educate themselves, you know, three, four times throughout their entire career. And I always said to them, if you, if you think about it, like if you go to the doctor, and the doctor is 70 years old and he said, I haven't studied a single book since I finished my degree in the 80s. <laughs> Would you really want that guy to stick a needle in your arm? <laughs> like they Obviously, like you have to renew your knowledge and you have to understand, you know, different approaches. And I think, so I try a lot to, you know, emphasize a learning culture and a teaching culture. You know, we, that's the same thing as, you know, I have juniors that are presenting features just as much as I have seniors that are presenting features. Because they might as well learn how to present the feature from the beginning and they might as well, you know, we also might as well have to learn from their ideas. I mean, they are, a lot of them are super young, talented, like some of them are 22 years old and they are just delivering. And it's because we're creating a space where they feel safe to do it. Uh, so, yeah, that's. So, I mean, um, I need to ask you, a, you know, a final question. I mean, you know, last time we were, we were talking, you kind of gave me a bit of a cliffhanger. You said, you know, hey, I, I would like to. You know, share a bit on you know how we made you know you know Favro kind of like fit, you know you know how you work, <laughs> but we never finished that. You know, we never did that conversation. So I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to take too much time you know here today with that. But if you could just uh, give a few ideas on because I think I mean one of the things that you know we are evangelizing a lot is that you know in a in a in a world where work is you know at least to some extent hybrid, um, obviously it's been quite accelerated by COVID. Um, you know what happens online is is kind of like the main you know the main workplace. It's, it's, it used to be like the physical office was like the main workplace, but what happens online is very important. And then uh, the the tools that you use are going to impact your your culture quite a bit. Um, and you know, therefore, I'm 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 just curious to kind of getting your you know three minute take on you know just you know some of the things that you've done. Yeah. So the first thing that we did was. I mean, we, we work with Fevro as a main Fevro as a main tool on both productions, but the both productions are using them differently, and I think that's really up to for, for for me. We have a retrospective on my team every second week, and the point is, we sit down, we talk about the process. I built, I set the stage, but they're allowed to do whatever they want within those within those you know within that what do you call the stage light or whatever you can say. And Fevro is just easy for us to work with because. We have simple rules and it's a simple tool. It's, you know, we can, I can, I onboarded one today and I could onboard him in one hour and he has a, it's, okay, that, that's probably jinxing it, but I would guarantee that he would know how to open up and find his first task already from that. And for me, somebody, you know, when you're in a indie developer, you know, company, that's really important that it's just super fast to onboard people and that everybody around you also understand it really fast. Uh, and that's what we really got from that. I used to work with Jira, uh, 
and and you know that's that's completely the opposite so when we started working with Fibro, it's a, it was a it was a different kind of approach we work uh, completely scrum wise we have a product backlog on the left side we have a sprint backlog on the right side and, uh, and we kind of just have you know like uh, what the list in the in the left side and then we have like a, a kanban board on the right it's very um, it's very simple like that we have one rule that i really emphasize a lot we never assign more than one person to a task and it's because we work with this kind of responsibility environment where there cannot be two people assigned to a task. There can only be, if a task takes more than two people, then divide it into two. And then every person has the, uh, what do you call it, the responsibility to make sure that that task goes from, you know, uh, start to in progress to QA to done. And then eventually at the end of the sprint, I throw it into the archive when we are sitting in a meeting and saying like, this is it, are we good? And then we drop it all and then we start over and we empty out the sprint every time. And doing that with Febro is <laughs> like, there's no, nothing compared uh, and, uh, that. I'm just going to applaud you a little bit because that is, uh, that is uh, actually a feature I really like. And then ob obviously like uh, I, I said to you last time when we spoke, I really love that guy, Dovidas. He's just like all the time. And you're like, we actually have two Dovidas. <laughs> like, they must be working a lot because I'm like talking to them all the time and they're so nice. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Did that answer your question? No, but that, that's great. And I think, you know, from, you know, from our perspective, um, you know, it, you know, most, you know, most tool vendors come from the perspective of, well, making tools, right? It's, it's natural. But in our case, we come from a little bit of a different approach. You know, most most of us are former game developers or have some kind of connection in the game industry, and and we're coming more from the say the the, the people perspectives. Like, okay, now what you know, how would you like to work? And once you figure that out, what what would that look like if you design a tool? And I mean, this was the whole origin of why we created this in the first place. And I, so so you know. Maybe there will be a, a podcast with me, you know, where I talk about how we built our culture. You know, yeah, I'd love to hear that. I mean, I think uh, because it's, uh, you know, it, it, it you know, as a, as, a, as a tool vendor, you're always a little bit on the sideline. You know, you're, you know, the, the the hero of the story is always the one who makes the thing that becomes a success, right? So, like in your case, you're making you know great games that becomes a big success. So you're the hero. You know, and and you know, we're a little bit more, you know, the kind of the, the background. But that's very kind. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that makes humans humans are our ability to make tools. So you know, I also I'm 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 proud, you know, being a toolmaker because again, I think it's something very fundamentally human to be toolmakers. Uh, that's so nice and uh, simply put, right? I mean, it's uh, but it is what it is. I I think you know. It delivered on the promise of you know being easy to open up and 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 just immediately implement. And for me, coming from the outside, coming from a much more different software, they overdo. Like we don't need like all these millions of features. We need this, and it's yeah, that's it. So uh, yeah, good, good on you. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for a really good conversation. You know, and as I said, you know, I am um, we are on season three now, and we're already starting to have some returning guests. So you know, uh, hopefully. Uh, in a in a future season, you know, I can invite you back and we can talk about some of the more recent, um, you know, things that's been happening. That would be great. Absolutely. I mean, we have uh, some very exciting stuff right uh, happening right now, and uh, it's like one of those things where I was like, "Can I talk about it today?" And I think it's a little bit too early. So uh, yeah, yeah. No, we get back to it. We get back to it. <laughs> next year would be nice, and then we'll see if we actually succeeded if our processes were yeah, working. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Take care. See you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, you know what to do. Share it in your social media 
so more people can take part and learn. And one more thing, check out Favro Academy on favro.com for many more learnings. Thanks for tuning in.